Good evening, everyone. <clears throat> we begin the book of Judges tonight. And I want to start with a pop quiz, because what could be better than that? Some of you thought you got out of all of that in school. Uh, first of all, though, if you don't have a Bible, is anyone here who doesn't have a Bible so we can get one to you? Okay. See the hands go up? Don't worry, we'll get them to you. It will be now, imagine this, we are now starting the seventh book of the Bible. Since we've been here, we've gone through John, Acts, Revelation, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua, all in our first five years. Just crazy. So in the seventh book of the Bible, the book of Judges, but I wanted to start with this. <clears throat> I'm just going to do this. I, okay, I need a positive sound and a negative sound from you. What would be a, just make up any positive sound right where you're sitting, some sound you can make that sounds positive. Go ahead, ready? Give it to me. One, two, three. Okay, that's good. That was good. That's very positive. Give me a very negative sound now. Okay, good. Okay, awesome. See, this is the safety of numbers. This way you can try to participate and still be British. So, here's the way this works is I am going to just bark out a name. I've got about 40 or 50 names here. I'm going to bark out a name, and all you have to do is tell me whether this is a judge in the book of Judges or not. And you'll do that either by making the positive sound, which is this, okay, or the negative sound, which is beautiful. That took a French guy to make that sound, didn't it? Okay, are you ready? Wow, that was neither positive nor negative. I see if I didn't know from it. Was there like a yawn in that? Okay, here we go. You ready? Now again, just make your noise. Don't even worry about it. Knee jerk. Here we go. Ready? Oliver. Now, okay, good. No, it's not. Nebuchadnezzar. Eh. Well, where's Come on now. Don't be afraid. Just come on now. The great thing is, every, if all of you are making a noise, then, you know, okay, Oliver is not. Nebuchadnezzar is not. Othniel. Yes, Othniel is one. Ostrichol. No, no, no. Bird-like character. Maher Shalal Hashbaz. No. But he is the son of Isaiah. His name literally means run to the booty. So there you go. Hezekiah. No. Okay, great. Okay. Ehud. Ehud. Ooh, good, yes. Ehud was a judge. Excellent. Ebert. No. Shampoo. No, yeah, so I'm trying to make it easy on you here. So you're looking at you're looking at me strange. I'm trying to make it easy on you. This is where you can make a noise, right? So I'm like shampoo, and you go, oh, shampoo. Thanks for that. Oh, it's the easy one. Good. Here we go. Next one, Shamgar. Shamgar is a judge. That was good though. Thank you. Shazam. No, Shazam. No, Shambo. No, the judge that comes up with his guns. No, Jillian. No, lovely name, but it isn't one. Dolores. No, lovely name as well, but not. Deborah. Yes, you know, there's a judge in there. Decola. No, no. <laughs> no is correct. Gideon. Yes, Gideon is one. Gidget. No, she was on the surfboard. Uh, Goliath. No, he was not a judge. Giggleslock. No, see, I'm trying to make it easier. Cola. No, come on now. No. Wait, you shouldn't be leaving this team. Tofu. 
No, see, you, that was what everyone knew, that that couldn't possibly be a judge. The judge for food. All right, Tola. Yes, Tola is a judge. Yair. Yes, Yair is a judge. Harry. No. Yakiaki. That sweet and syrupy judge. No, that is not. Yefta. Yes, Yefta is one. Good. Bartholomew. No, but he was a disciple. Abiza. No, it's a nice place, but uh, no, that's no, not. Ibso. No, good. Ibzan. Yes, good. Ibex. No, that's an antelope. Hello. No, good. Edlon. Close. He was a king, but not a judge. Elon. Yes, Elon is one. Abdu. No, but he kind of hangs out and must be. Adnoy. No, but it's a fun name. Elkoy. Yes, the judge that was curiously strong. No, he wasn't one. Okay, Abdon. Yes, Abdon was one. Dimsum. I'm looking at you here. Dimsum, no. Sample. No, Samson. Okay, good. I hope you did well on that. That was just kind of give you an idea. There are, to give you an idea, there are 12 judges listed in the book of Judges by name. Six of them are going to be a little bit more popular, perhaps, than the others, in the sense that we'll get a little bit more press. And there is a little bit. We would, let's just jump right in with prayer. My goal is to kind of give an introduction, and then actually to walk us through maybe the first chapter or two, because I want to get our feet wet into this beautiful book. And I understand, this is a rough book for a handful of reasons. It should be an extremely personal book uh, by the time we're done with it. So pray with me if you would, please. God, thank you so, so, so much for the privilege of being able to be in your word, for the privilege of being able to see you high and lifted up, to declare praises to you, to cry out to you, to cry out to you, and to pray that you rent our hearts and fill them with your love, and that you remove who we were and make us more who you want us to be, what you're creating, what you're reinventing us to be. And Lord, I just thank you so much for every person here, and pray that your word would burst open and come alive on this beautiful night. Lord, have your way now, we pray. I just pray, God, that you would be glorified, that you would be blessed, and Lord, that you would be encouraged, and may we worship you, Lord, in our attention. May we worship you in our retention as we seek to hold on to your word. And may we, may we worship you in our intention as we intend to apply what, what you want us to learn today. Lord, please have your way now. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would I'd say tonight is I want any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible have the final say. Now, now understand, Paul will actually give a little bit of a history when he talks about judges. And he says in Acts 13.20 that he gave us judges. This is Paul being quoted, so we can't say that it's perfect truth, but it says that he says he gave them judges for about 450 years. And so we use that as kind of a reference. But by 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, it tells us in the 480th year since Israel left Egypt, they built the temple. So that gives you sort of a frame of reference. Somewhere between four, roughly 400 to 450 years was this time of Judges. Now, this is why, to be honest, a lot of people even avoid teaching the book. Because it really is a rough book. 
And the reason it's a rough book is because it's a cycle. And this is why it is so important for us to be in it. Because it isn't about, I mean, who wants to revisit dark times in our life? I mean, who wants to go look at those times of failure unless those dark times in our life seem to be cyclical? In other words, I mean, there's one thing to have that where it's like, oh, I'm just loving God and I'm way on top of things. And then there's those times where I'm like, what in the world? I'm homeless and I'm crazy and out of my mind and I'm not making stupid choices. And then I'm back up again. And it seems like that's my whole walk so far. So what in the world are we doing? I mean, if that's really where we are, then this book is for us. The book of Judges is this cycle. And so I kind of put this together to kind of give us an idea of the way that kind of looks. So, this, because it's sort of an old cycle, I thought I'd put it together this way. So here's how it works. God blesses Israel with peace. And Israel then forgets the blesser for the blessing. Therefore, Israel abandons God for other gods and does evil in God's sight. And then God removes his covering, and then therefore Israel is oppressed. And as Israel is oppressed, life becomes miserable. Now, how miserable does it have to be? So ultimately, the people will cry out to God. And as the people cry out to God, God has pity on them, and he raises up a deliverer. And when he raises up a deliverer, well, then they get peace again. And once they get peace again, well, then ultimately they get comfortable again. And when they get comfortable again, they bail on God for the blessing. And when they bail on God for the blessing and they abandon him, God removes his covering, and it happens over and over and over again. Now, that may be your whole walk up to this point. I have a real hard time when I ask, how are you doing in Christ? And we kind of make it sound like we're on an elevator, a lift, or we're on a roller coaster. Because before I knew the Lord, that was certainly the case, because my life was dictated by the circumstances. But the moment that I traded happiness in for the joy of the Lord, which didn't vacillate, it didn't undulate, it stayed the same, my life has been a steady climb ever since. And there's something crazy about that, because... Truth be told, if it were by circumstances, I would be way on the wall right now. I mean, a crazy thing's happening. And that's the exciting thing, is when you can show the joy of the Lord, and I've heard it said, the, the time when you display the joy of the Lord more than any, is when you have really nothing to be happy about. Now, I'll always have something to be happy about. I mean, we are, our problems are first world problems. Nobody's gunning us down, no one's knifing us. No, we're not running around our whole time afraid of getting bombed or, or any of that. We're not worrying about where our next meal is or whether we're going to sleep in a warm bed tonight. I mean, our problems are really first world problems. Our first world problems is we missed a bus, but another one's coming. I mean, in another place, I mean, where we lived before this, if you miss a bus, you have to come back tomorrow. I mean, true story. There's like, it comes once a day. And the only reason, and that's still a first world problem, because there was still a bus coming. And the reason I say that is, is it's amazing what could, would make us say, I'm God, my brother, I'm God. You've got it over what? You know, you missed, you know, you missed your what? You know, what it was. I mean, even if someone stole our wallet, that could be awful. And I don't want to make little of it, but I'm going to. <laughs> so it means it's still in the end of it all. You can still get all your, I mean, you can cancel all your cards. It's an inconvenience. You get new ones. You may have lost 40 pounds, you might get back. In my case, you lost 5 pounds, but you're going to get it back, right? In the end of all, maybe I'm going to lose a Cafe Nero or whatever, you know, loyalty card, and they have most of the stamps. But I mean, in the end of it all, that's where it goes. And yet I want you to realize that we still could live that same kind of life. Where there's a problem, because every time we seem to get on top of things, and we're walking with the Lord, and it's just so great, there's a part of us that kind of wonders when we're going to fall again. So here's the thing before we even get there. What does it take? 
What does it take to break the cycle? Because if it doesn't break the cycle and this is our whole life, are we just going to belt ourselves in for this tumultuous, turbulent road that's somehow supposed to be so abundant that we're not really getting it? What am I missing? Interesting. You know how the book of Judges ends? We get a proper king. That's the problem. And here's the difference, beloved. In contemporary Christianity, we play this soft savior game with Jesus. He's your savior, man. He's like, he really was his savior. And that's true. But nowhere in Scripture does Jesus say, well, as long as you confess me, Savior, we're cool. What it tells us, by the way, is if you are willing to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and that's different altogether. And I guarantee you, if you start, and by the way, I can say this, I accepted Jesus as my Savior when I was 19 years old. I won't even tell you what year that was because none of you were even around for it. Maybe we'll talk about that later. Marcy. But, for the next three, four years, I lived like I was going to hell. But I would have told you I was going to heaven. I would have told you Jesus was my Savior, and I lived the book of Judges. However, there was a moment when I opened up that book for the first time, the one that's in your lap, and I fell in love with the God who revealed himself to be who he is. And he became more than my Savior. He became my Lord. Or might I say, He became my King. And when that happens, it should break the cycle. And the reason it should break the cycle is because we do something more now than make Jesus our great biblical bellhop. What we make Him is our King, our boss, our Lord. And we become obedient. A word that every part of our flesh crawls over. But a word that's necessary in the world. So understand, this book is going to be a book where what we're going to see is this dark cycle. But the reason we're going to see this dark cycle is to ask ourselves, how dark does it have to get before we cry out to God? And understand, what God's raising up, if you think about it, is saviors. Throughout the book, what we have is one savior after another. Gideon saves them from Midian. That should be an easy one to remember if you can rhyme. You know, it's like you kind of see these guys raised up, and they kind of save Israel from their bondage. But there's still, what we get is, at the end, if you remember, the end of the book of Joshua, what we get is a bunch of people who said they were going to obey God, but they didn't throw away their other gods. Which tells us they're more than happy to have God as their protector and provider. They're more than happy to have Him as Savior, but to make Him Lord is a very different thing. And what we're going to see in chapter 1 will be, in essence, the very theme of compromise. What compromise looks like. Now, my prayer is, right now, you're in love with the Lord. Right now, there is an emotion attached to it, but it's not just an emotion. There is a truth of Scripture that is attached to it, too. There is a commitment in your intent and in your passion that is connected with it. I, I, I pray that you're kind of on the top of that cycle, not on the bottom. But regardless of where you are, you're going to be have to, we're going to have to look at this chapter and say, what about this in my life? Because what we're going to see is, is that chapters 1 and 2 are kind of, if you will, the thesis statement for the entire 21-chapter book. Because we're going to see Joshua again in chapter 2, and Joshua already died at the end of the book of Joshua. And again, the idea of it is we're just kind of seeing this review. I mean, just like if you're kind of seeing a, 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 you know, kind of a sequel to a movie, you kind of have to get a little bit of backstory to kind of get you some context. Well, that's what we kind of have here. Now understand, it could have been listed in any way, but God listed it in a way that's clearly in order. There's a progression or a digression 
in this chapter, and it's really important to grab a hold of. Now, let me give you a little bit of background, and we're going to dive into our chapter. First of all, in regards to judges, all the way back in Exodus 18, there was a need for judges. At that point, Moses was leading a crew. They were out of Egypt, but they weren't in the Promised Land. And Moses was handling every squabble, every disagreement, every civil disagreement, every sort of, you know, uh, <coughs> every misdemeanor, <coughs> excuse me, every felony. He was handling it all. And his father-in-law, Hobab, you know, shows up, and he just kind of says, you're working yourself to death. You need to have some help, some proper help. Guys that you trust, that will raise up, that can handle the smaller cases. And from that, God firmly backs up Hobab. And with that, then 70 guys are raised up. That will be the birth of what we'll see in Jesus' day as the Sanhedrin, which, by the way, is the 70. It comes from that. And then from that, Exodus 21, we'll see in regards to that, that a bondservant has to be brought before those judges. Exodus 21 and 22, any incidental injury, two guys are in a fight and they hit a poor pregnant gal and the gal miscarries. You're going to bring them before those judges. If there's something handled, whether it's stolen or you're holding for a friend and it disappears, you go before the judges. In Numbers 25, when the people joined themselves to the false god Baal of Peor, it was the judges who had to execute judgment, which, by the way, was execute judgment. And in every case, all the way through to Deuteronomy, what was clear is, it was, there were these judges, there were, if you will, the sort of simple judges, the circuit judges, and then there was Moses that oversaw, and then God, who was the supreme judge, ultimately. Deuteronomy 16, 8, 32, 26, to the point where if you don't listen to what the judges said, that was actually punishable by death. Civil disputes, Deuteronomy 25, a guy found slain in between two cities, Deuteronomy 21, the judges handled that stuff. They checked for false witnesses in Deuteronomy 19. In Joshua 8, those judges were there, by the way, in between the two mountains as they pronounced the blessings and curses. The judges have been prominent all the way back from Exodus 18 in the middle of the wilderness, in the early part of the wilderness. But this particular book, what we're going to see is these judges were not like these guys that actually did the job of, in essence, handling disputes. These guys were, in essence, temporary saviors, is what they were. Interesting, by the way, two key themes in this, of three if you will, six different times in this particular book we'll read that the Lord delivered. And that's important to recognize. 1, 4, 3, 10, 6, 1, 11, 32, 12, 3, 13, 1. They're all going to speak about how God was the one who delivered. No matter what tool or person he used, it was God that did the deliverance. But the two things that speak of Israel, by the way, is one, <clears throat> that though there was no king in Israel, which was sad because when God speaks to Samuel after this book, he'll say, the problem wasn't you, Samuel. They have refused me from being their king. You see, their first king was God. So when God says there was no king in Israel, what he was saying is, I wasn't their king, and I should have been. But six, or five different times, if you will, we read, by the way, that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We're going to see. Interesting, though, because seven different times, well, with that, at least twice we're going to see that, seven different times we're going to read that Israel did what was right, I'm sorry, did, Israel did, what, did evil in the sight of the Lord. And this is the hard part to sort of wrap my head around. Is that the book begins with everyone doing evil in the sight of the Lord, and by the end of the book, they do what is right in their own eyes. And in the same book, what was right in their own eyes 
was evil in the sight of God. It was a time, by the way, where anyone's truth was anyone's truth. There was no absolute truth to lay out. There was no law to lay out, which is really sad. And you know why? Because God was not the king. And if God was their king, there would be absolutes. It would be easy. Things would be very definitive. It is amazing how simple things get when the truth is laid out before us. Well, with that in mind, that's what we're looking at. It's going to get to the point where by the end of the book of Judges, a story so heinous, it's almost hard to believe is in Scripture. One quick other thing, and we'll dive into our text. The first time the people find themselves, when God actually brings it to light, they find themselves in bondage. They were in the bondage for eight years. Then they cry out to God. The second time they're in bondage for 18 years. And then they cry out to God. The third time they're in bondage for 20 years. And they cry out to God. And here's my concern. Is if you've lived this cycle for quite a while, you can build quite a tolerance to your bondage. I mean, the first time you did it, it was like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I've even done anything like that. I'll never do that again. You cried out to God. The second time it lasted a little while. By the third time, you get to this place where you don't even feel it's wrong anymore. That's what this book looks like. And until God takes his proper throne, that's what your life's going to be like. And mine too, by the way. And if you are led to believe somehow <clears throat> in all of this, <coughs> excuse me, that you're on the throne of your heart, you've been lied to. Never in your life are you on the throne of your own heart. Either the enemy is or God is. That's all there is. And the enemy, in his cunning, could easily lead us to believe. He led me to believe that I was in control of my life. Until I realized, if I was in control of my life, why am I making these ridiculous choices that hurt me and others? Well, in this, by the way, of the 400 to 450 years that are addressed in this book, 110 of those years will be in oppression, by the way, at least 110 years. At least 296 years of this will be in rest following a judge's deliverance. There will be at least seven enemy groups, Mesopotamia, the Moabites, Philistines, Canaanites, Midianites, Ammonites, and the Philistines. And again, 12 judges raised up from at least eight tribes. Some of them aren't mentioned more than a quick here to them, that's it. But please hear me now as we get into our text. In Romans 15, 4, it tells us whatever things were written prior, and that's, of course, what we're looking at now, were written for our learning. So we, through the patience and comfort of scriptures, might have hope. One thing we should be finding in this book is hope. We should have hope because what we realize is no matter how stupid Israel is, just like me, just like you, God will deliver when we cry out to him sooner or later. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6, it tells us that these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after the evil things as they also lusted. One of the things that we read as we read the Old Testament is there to serve as a warning to us to not crave what they crave because we see the end of that. In 1 Corinthians 10, 11, it says the things that happened to them were examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages have come. They have come as a warning and a challenge to us. But lastly, Jesus says, you search the scriptures in John 5, thinking by them you possess eternal life, but these are they that testify of me. I expect to find Jesus on every page. That's the beauty. Well, at this point, let me fill you in now on where we're at, and we'll get these first two chapters, and we'll see if we can walk through them. Well, by the time that Judges begins, the curtain opens, the major 
enemies have fallen. Every major large group, every major city has been taken down. And what is left are these little smoldering embers of enemies for which each tribe will now individually be responsible to handle. But it is so important to recognize that Israel went to battle first as a nation, as a congregation, not just as individuals. It is one of the reasons why I cannot stress how important it is to be part of. It's easy for me to say that to you guys, right? But I cannot stress how important it is to be part of a fellowship you can be a part of. Because we go to battle together. There will be individual battles to be fought. But the big ones we watch the Lord take down as a family, as a congregation. Well, with that said, take a look at it now, chapter 1, verse 10. Now, after the death of Joshua... It came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall go first, or who shall be first, to go up for us against the Canaanites and fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. So Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up to me, or with me, to my allotted territory, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I will, likely go with, I will likewise go with you to your allotted territory. And Simeon went with them. Now, please understand, as we begin this particular book, he started setting the scene here. The land has been divvied up. There have been 12 tribes. Remember, two and a half of those tribes have taken the land east of the Jordan. The rest of the nine and a half have taken them west of the Jordan, the land where we call Israel today. And of them, by the way, Simeon's a bit of an anomaly because Simeon doesn't even kind of get their own land. Judah got more land than they could populate because Judah was bad, they were battle happy. Now they weren't battle happy like they just wanted to kill everyone. They were like sort of psycho, like they were the like expendables or something. What they were really, to be honest, is they just knew if God was going to give the land, they were going to go get it. But they didn't have enough people to populate the land that they were in. So as a result of that, God as a favor then says, well, let's put Simeon, who really hasn't been much of the battle at this point, we'll put them in there with your territory so the land is occupied. So at that point, when Judah says, hey, you want to come with me, they're kind of neighbors. It isn't like they kind of called somebody, you know, like here we are in London, and they kind of called somebody up in Birmingham. This was kind of like one borough talking to another borough. It was like, if you will, Camden's talking to Westminster and saying, you guys want to join in with us because we really kind of, we're going to fight, fight some battles. I'll tell you, I'll make a deal. You fight with me, I'll fight with you. And that's kind of where we start this thing. Now, it doesn't say, by the way, whether this is positive or negative. It doesn't say whether they were compromising because of this, because it really isn't the point. The point is, at least at this point, there is some form of, Joinality, some kind of solidarity between these tribes, and that is important. Well, with that in mind, I want to remind you, Joshua actually is dead by the beginning of this book, but again, God is kind of bringing us into the current status. So, so verse 4, Then Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into the hand, and they killed 10,000 men at Bezek. Bezek, by the way, means lightning. Now, I remind you, God had said that I have given, or I have delivered the land into his hand. That's verse 2. So Judah now is taking charge of that. He's grabbing a hold of the promise, and they're kicking butt, if you will, pardon me for saying. Now, Bezek, by the way, Bezekah today is three miles northeast of Gezer, which is interesting because that's not Judean territory. It's actually territory of Ephraim. But just to say, it'll be where Saul will gather his troops for battle in 1 Samuel 11. And I think that's an interesting place God starts with because the first physical king of Israel will start his first battle at the same place. I think that's interesting, God started there. Well, with that in mind. It's, uh, the Perizzites, by the way, occupy the area between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean. It's today the area we might call Samaria, Nablus, that kind of area today. 
Judah went up, the Lord delivered the Canaanites, Perizzites, into their hand, and they killed 10,000 men of Bezek. Verse 5, and they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek. That's probably appropriate. You'd expect to find him there, wouldn't you? Adonai, by the way, reminds you means king of, lord of, god of Bezek. And he fought against him, and he defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and Adonai Bezek fled. They pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. And you kind of think, what? Well, that's strange. Now again, when God lists history, unless he makes a comment on it, we can't tell whether, from this, whether this is something God says this was a great thing to do or this was a negative thing. But he does show something here in regards to see divine justice. Verse 7 says, As the Nibesic said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to gather straps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. They brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. Somewhere in all this, Edna Bezek becomes clear that he had done this to 70 other kings. Here's the problem. Edna Bezek was a secular Gentile king, and that's how he treated the kings underneath him. And Israel now seems to have copied that. You take it for what you want, but it is something that's a little bit concerning. It is interesting to note, though, why the thumbs and big toes? Well, we are unique creatures. I mean, there are certainly a few other creatures out on the planet like this, but we have what we call opposable thumbs. We can thank God for that invention, by the way. The opposable thumb allows you to grab something. That means that your thumb can actually oppose the rest of your fingers. That's kind of nice. That helps you hold that coffee that you got perhaps before you got here or the tea you'll get at the end. It helps you grab a biscuit. It helps you shake your hand. It also helps you hold a sword. It also helps you write. That opposable thumb is a very, very big deal. I mean, without it, you can kind of wave, you can give a high four, but you just can't hold anything. On the other side of it, you're a big toe, or if you have the old King Jimmy, it says grand toe. Well, your grand toe, your big toe, is what gives you all your balance and your strength to launch. You can walk without it. You don't walk well, but you can walk without it. But you can't push. Those little toes just can't do that much work. So you can't run. You can't stand strong. And you certainly can't ride the 326 in my area, the bus, without falling over a railing without your big toes. That's pretty evident. And the reason I say that is, is that the idea is simple. It kept them alive, but rendered them powerless, was the idea. Now, was that what God intended? We don't read anywhere that God said that. He told us, by the way, to defeat the enemies and to not leave anything standing. Now, that sounds cruel until you realize that somewhere in all of that, they're a danger and they'll never convert. Your flesh nature will never convert. Your flesh nature will never one day get saved. That's why we're told to reckon it dead. But I do love this. That when Jesus speaks, he says, when a strong man is fully armed, he feels at peace in his own place. Until someone comes who is stronger than him, destroys his armory, renders him impotent, and takes all of his goods. Now, a lot of people like to take that and they talk about binding Satan. Which is interesting because if the story is the way it is, are we stronger than him? No. But Jesus is. And Jesus walked right into Satan's territory and he took all of his goods. He rendered him impotent. And if you will, Satan still, if you will, is still alive. He can still speak. His tongue and his lips have not been cut off. But his thumbs and big toes perhaps have in that sense. Oh, here's the crazy part. 
You go, I hear this crazy thing and it tells me something crazy. Isn't it great that you know it's crazy? There may have been a time in your life you wouldn't have even known it was crazy. And that's why Satan looks like, roars, if you will, prowls or lurches, perhaps because he can't walk very well, like a roaring lion, seeking who he may devour. And he may tell you stuff, and because he's a liar, and it's, by the way, the father of lies, and this is one of my favorite New International Version uh, sayings, when Jesus speaks about him in John 10, he says, and when he lies, he speaks his native language. Kind of like that. Like, you know, you know the, the, his native tongue is lying. And he can tell you that you're, that you're captive when you're not. He can tell you that you're empty when you're not. He can tell you that you're incomplete when you're not in Christ. And yet in all of that, as he barks, he really can't touch you. And if you don't believe me, look at 1 John chapter 5 and just read it for yourself. It's a short chapter because it says, Whoever has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. That's a really serious verse. Because I hear people like, oh, Satan was just baiting on my head. You know, I'm like, wait a minute. Not according to First John 5. But that doesn't mean he can't talk. That doesn't mean he can't try to make your life miserable. But in the end of it all, let me remind you, Jesus said he is the gate to the sheep. I mean, we know that nobody comes to the Father except by him. But you need to recognize nobody gets to the sheep except by him either. And I'm very thankful for that. My shepherd is the good sheep. How about you? And there's something that kind of hit me this week. On Sunday, as we were as we were just about to start church, I get a text from one of the guys that obviously clearly doesn't come here because uh, he was texting me right when church was so. And he, he used that verse where Jesus spoke about how the gates of hell will not prevail. And I like that because the easiest place to look at it, of course, the simplest place is this. Jesus says to Peter, upon this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. And of course, the gates of hell, gates are to keep you out. That's the idea. You lock your door to keep people out. Perfectly, you don't lock your door to keep people in. That's, that's how kidnapping. But you get you close gates to feel safe. And the idea of the gates of hell will not prevail is important because what that means is, is that I should be able to do like Jesus did. But if Jesus went, and, the, and the, the, by the way, the Strong man is still not bound. It isn't like Jesus untied him enough. If he's that so, what were the goods? What were his precious things that he took? It was us. Do you really think Satan had something else? Like Jesus went, oh, I need to get rock and roll. Or I need to get rap music. Or I need to get what? I mean, let's face it. The one thing that was precious to Jesus was you. That's why he went down the first place. But it occurred to me on Sunday something I had not thought about before. I mean, clearly, I know the idea is you should be bold to say, I could walk right into hell and I'm not worried about Satan. I'm going to go in there and say, all right, who wants to come with me? But the gates were also the place where the council took place. For instance, when Boaz wanted to get Ruth, he had to go to the gates of the city. When you needed to get that judgment and you went to the judges, they were at the gates of the city. If you were going to get married, you got married at the gates of the city because that was where all the official business took place. And there's something about that, especially on Sunday, that hit me because he's like, you know what? If you recognize that proclamation that Peter had made, by the way, this beautiful testament of Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he's going to build his church on this. He's not going to build his church on Peter. That's clear. Because Peter himself said that no other foundation could be laid except that of Jesus Christ. I mean, Peter understood. But if I get all of that, I realize that all of the trickery and the chicanery and all of the plotting of Satan cannot stand against God's church. Isn't that good news? 
And that doesn't mean they can't yell and create trouble. But in the end of it all, if the house is built on the rock, there will be storms, there will be floods, there will be winds, but the house is going to stand. Well, with all of that said, we're back in our text. And this all came because this king had his thumbs and his toes cut up, right? Big toe. And he says, hey, you know what? I should have seen it coming, by the way. I did it to seven the other guys. It happened to me. And Jesus says, by the way, of course, whatever measure you judge, you judge back to you. And it says in verse 8, Now the children of Judah fought against Jerusalem and took it, and they struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire, which is really strange. Now, I want to remind you, Judah, by the way, does not have all of the city of Jerusalem. That's actually Benjamin. The Jerusalem, by the way, is shaped like a paintbrush. The handle will ultimately call, be called the city of David, and that is Judean territory. But the square part, that will be like the Temple Mount area, that actually belongs to Benjamin. But they, if they did take all of it, which we don't necessarily have there, if they did, then somewhere down the line would you have to say to take it back, because David has to conquer it again. Or did they just conquer the handle? It's not. Afterward, the children of Judah, and we, by the way, this is review now, and I'll go through it fairly quickly, because we saw it at the end of, of Joshua. Afterward, the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who dwelt in the mountains, in the south, and in the lowlands. Judah went against the Canaanites who dwelt in Hebron. Now, the name of Hebron was formerly Kiryat Arba. I have a Kiryat in city of. So, Kiryat Arba means the city of Arba. Arba, by the way, is, number, is the number four in, uh, in Hebrew. So, the fourth city of the city of Arba. And they killed Shishai, Achiman, and Talmai. And from there they went to the inhabitants of the Beer, the Beer's formerly Kerasephar, with the city of Sifir. Caleb says, whoever attacks Kerasephar and takes it to him, I will give my daughter Achsa as wife. Othiel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, we'll find later, Caleb's brother, took it. So he gave it his daughter Achsa's wife, and it happened. And when she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field, and she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Give me a blessing, since you've given me land in the south. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. The children of Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms, the children of Judah, and the wilderness of Judah, lies in the south of Abad. They came and dwelt among the people. Now, now, consider the fact that we already have this information. I mean, those of us who were here last week, we saw that. That ultimately, before Joshua dies, Caleb, by the way, seems to outlive him, or somewhere in this. And somewhere in it, Caleb, by the way, is an old guy, too. Remember, he was one of the original 12 spies, all the way back when the Israel spied it out the first time. He was, one of the, he was the other spy that gave a positive report with Joshua. But hear me on this. He tells us the story a second time. I think that's interesting. Of all the things, I mean, if you're going to recap the last movie to kind of catch you up to, to speed, what do you pick? I mean, I would imagine you pick really important moments for which then something's going to be built upon, if that makes sense. I mean, you know, it's like when you're kind of looking at something and it's kind of a Marvel character and it's the second movie, you're kind of making sure that you're, in case you missed the first one and you're one of three people on the planet, well, here's some important points you're going to build on. So why this? I mean, if, of all the important things, I kind of get Joshua dies. That's kind of important news. I kind of get the idea that conquered most of the land, the major cities are conquered. I kind of get why that would be important. Why this? 
I mean, if you think about it, Caleb, he's 85, he's going to conquer this territory of Hebron, and then he's going to give some of it to his daughter, and his daughter, she, you know, and here's it. By the way, she must be pretty fine. I mean, 85 years old, he's got a daughter, I don't know how young she is, but I, he's 85. And he says, hey, whoever conquers this territory, I'm going to give my daughter to. Now, if she really wasn't something of a catch, nobody's going to risk their life for that. They're like, well, I guess we're not getting that territory. I am going to be honest. But somewhere in it, she must be something worth fighting for. What kind of like that? So take this, take it from her perspective for a moment. He's got this daughter, and he's got this daughter, and he loves her. That seems fairly apparent because he doesn't want her just with any loser. And with that, he says, whoever's willing to show her she's worth fighting for. Oh, that, that I'll give her. Okay, I think that's interesting. Turns out that his brother's, his younger brother's son, that's his nephew, so that means he's going to be part of the family. Not as weird as it sounds here, because we don't even know if they have the same parents on both sides. They could be half from their so-called sister. Nonetheless, he's Zaldwin, she's worth fighting for, and he goes to battle and he conquers. And as he conquers, he gets his bride. He had to fight for his bride and show her she was worth fighting for. Beloved, you were aware that you were the bride of Jesus, right? And you were aware of the fact that your groom went to battle for you because you're really worth fighting for. You are worth fighting for. You are worth risking life for. You're worth taking the enemy down for. And all of that for love. All of that to get a bride. We don't read, by the way. By the way, what, by the, what's interesting is this guy that winds up getting the bride becomes the first of the twelve judges, and his name Achiel means the Lion of God. I think that's interesting because, of course, Jesus is called the Lion of the Tribe of Judah. It is what the elders will call Jesus in the Book of Revelation. Now, for what that's worth, here's the interesting part of it again. And I remind you, they're bringing up something we already got in Joshua. And if we're reading straight through the book, we would have already gotten this. But he's <coughs> recapping it because we really need to grab a hold of this key point because somehow what's going to happen after this has to be built upon it. Does that make sense? I mean, if we're going to do the sequel right, whatever we're going to bring up, it's going to be built upon that fact. So, there's more to the story, though, than just this guy finds this girl worth fighting for, and he's going to go to battle, <coughs> and he's going to get her for it. Because there's more than that, and that is that the father wants to bless. And how does he bless the marriage? He gives a gift. He gives a gift, <coughs> excuse me, he gives a gift to show that he blesses or endorses the marriage. If the father doesn't give a gift, what he's saying is, you guys got married and maybe I conceded to it, but I'm not really into the marriage. But for the Father to give a blessing, He gives a gift. Now, it's great for me to say that in front of you because neither of my daughters are here tonight. Anyway, so, <laughs> so she says, well, He's given me property already that was part of my bride price, but I want more. Because the property, listen, 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 the land really doesn't mean anything without living water. Because without living water, the ground's going to be barren. So she says to the groom, will you please? She is, if you think about it, she's praying. She is asking for supplication, and she's asking the groom, would you please ask the Father for living water? 
And so, as what we find is ultimately she has a direct link to him through that sin. And with that now, she says, I would like this. And he gives her abundance. The upper springs, that's the high places. And the lower springs, that's the valley. You will never be without living water. It is in the upper and high places, in the high times, and in the low times. In the moments when you feel like you're riding high and you just feel like you can kiss God because He's so real, and the moments when it feels like you're really walking the shadow, the valley of the shadow. Or the shadow, yeah, the valley of the shadow. In both places. And I love this situation. And here's the point. Is that somewhere that God says, don't miss this story. We've covered it once, but don't miss this story because the next part that I'm going to develop now is going to show you what happens if we compromise from that. And here's the, here's the situation again. You are betrothed. You belong by love in a covenant with a groom endorsed by the Father who has given you living water. Which, of course, as Jesus speaks and says, whoever thirsts, let him come to you. That out of him will torrent or well up or spring up living water of which he spoke of the Holy Spirit. We know. You are, first of all, get this through your head. You are worth fighting for and you were worth fighting for from the one person who knew you perfectly. And I do find it interesting because I would imagine the uncle knew her quite better than a total stranger. And my Jesus knows you perfectly, but you're worth fighting for. And he was willing to die on that cross for you because <clears throat> in him is written, right, are all of the things testify of him. And that tells me here that I'm, I'm seeing those hints of Christ in me. Beloved, beloved, you are worth and he fought for you. And he took it to death. And he took all of your sins and all of your grime and mine too. And he died on that cross. And he rose again. And it was there that you said, no, ask me for anything. And it's like, well, do you want riches? No, that's not what you really want. What you want is the things that only God's Holy Spirit can give you. And he goes, I'll give you the upper springs and the lower springs. I will withhold nothing from you. He said. And I love that. Because it's from that that we bounce onto the dark side. What we see here, by the way, is that from the perspective of the Father, from the perspective of the groom, there's total commitment, total blessing, total love, total kindness. That's what we see on that side. What we see on the rest of this is what happens on the, on the, on the other side, the betrothed side. Follow me in this progression. <clears throat> Chapter 7, or verse 17. Judah went with his brother Simeon, and they attacked the Canaanites who inhabited Zephah, and utterly destroyed it, so the name of the city was called Hormah. Hormah, by the way, means dedicated, or set apart normally to destruction. And Judah took Gaza in its territory, Ashkelon in its territory, and Ekron in its territory. By the way, that's now we're looking at the coast of what we might see close to the Gaza Strip. And so the Lord was with Judah, and drove out the mountaineers, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. Now, here's the problem. God had already promised total victory. What we're going to see by the beginning excuse me, of chapter 2 is that the people themselves would not trust God, but instead clung to other idols, or clung to idols, clung to other gods. And that's why they started seeing loss. 
God says, I'll give you total victory. I'll give you total victory. Just stay true to me. Just cling to me. And so it begins. So we start adding a little something else into our life. I, I trust God with this, but not with this. I don't trust Him with my relationships. Or I don't trust Him with my career. Or I don't trust Him with my future. I don't trust Him with my finances. I don't trust Him with people. I don't trust Him with my future. Whatever it is. But the moment you start adding whatever it is to replace them, you stop seeing the victories you had before that point, and you go, now you say, I can't fight that. And the truth is, you can. I can. He can. But now the issue's yours now. Because you're not trusting him with everything, now the responsibility, if you are, if God's not going to fight the battle, who has to pick up the slack? You do. And then you look and you go, but they have chairs and all like they're going, they've got a tank. And they drive down the street near New Barnett Station. What can I come at them with? I've got a couple, you know, bats. I've got a couple kitchen knives. You know, I mean, in the end of it all, I've got a few weapons that are, they're only for decoration, by the way. They've been gifts. But when you kind of look at it and you realize, I'm no, no, no possible threat to a tank. And that's what God does. Is He shows us he will always allow us in our compromise to be put in a place where we can't win the battle without him. So that we'll turn to him like we're supposed to. And that's where it starts. Is we get to that place where we realize we cannot do it ourselves. And that's the compromise. But look at where it moves to. Verse 21. But the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites. Did you see the did not? Not could not, but did not. Who inhabited Jerusalem... So the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. And the, <coughs> excuse me, the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with him. So the house of Joseph sent out to spy Bethel, and the name of the place was formerly Luz. Now, do you really want to be in a town called Luz when you know there are battles to be fought? And when the spies saw a man coming out of the city, they said to him, Please show us the entrance of the city, and we'll show you mercy. So he showed him the entrance of the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and his family go. And the man went into the land of the Hittites, built a city, and he called its name Luz. That guy just, I guess he really just didn't want to change his address, right? Which is uh, its name to say. Where do you live? Luz. Where do you live now? Luz. Verse 27, however, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bitshan and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, the inhabitants of Dor in its villages, the inhabitants of Iblian in its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo in its villages. For the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. And it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites under tribute, but did not completely drive them out. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gizel, so the Canaanites dwelt in Gizel among them. Nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kit of Kitron, or the inhabitants of Nahalon. So the Canaanites dwell among them, or put under tribute. Nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko, which, by the way, they just discovered in Akko, an ancient village, 2,000 years old, by the way. They just discovered it underneath a parking lot in, in Jerusalem. I've always said, if I could, I would buy property in Jerusalem, a little apartment or whatever, and then I would just dig in my living room. I'm guaranteeing I'm going to find something awesome. Anyway. You know, that's, now that's on recording. See what's going to happen. 
You know, people are like, we've been invited every time we go. Do you want to kind of join us for a dig? I mean, I've got friends that are really good archaeologists there. And I'm like, no, because I know what's going to happen. I'm going to find something, and then I have to give it to you. I'm just being honest, you know, I'm being a little human here. I guess. <laughs> I'm like, I don't want to have to be tempted to sin like that. If you told me if I did whatever I find I can keep, well, then I would, I would go with you in a heartbeat. So, Anishu didn't drive out the inhabitants of Akam, or, you know, forgive me for being so tempted, or the inhabitants of Sidon, or Ahlab, or Ahzib, or Helva, or Atik, or Rehom. So the Asherites go among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, or they didn't drive them out. Nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Bet Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Bet Enough. They dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, nevertheless. The inhabitants of Bet Shemesh and Bet Enough were put under tribute to them. Which is always a little strange to me. Because, well, anyways, we'll talk about that. And the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains, for they would not allow them to come down to the valley. The Amorites were determined to dwell in Mount Perez, in Aijalon. That should sound familiar. Aijalon, by the way, I remind you, Joshua, we were there with Joshua, and the sun stood still here while we had total and absolute victory. Isn't it an interesting place that God leads us to here at the end of this chapter? And in Shadi, and the strength of the house of Joseph became greater, they put on a tribute. Now the boundary of the Amorites, from the ascent of Ahfadi, from Selah and upward. Now listen, I want you to walk with me on this for just the last few minutes here. Because what we see is the lifestyle of compromise. This is what it looks like. First of all, we add a little of something other than God into our life to replace a place only God should occupy. As a result of that, we find we can't do it on our own. What do we do? One of two things. <coughs> that first step is the warning shot. And that warning shot says, that feeling of defeat you have right now, are you going to hand it back over to me and get total victory? Or are you going to try to do more of this on your own? God allows that defeat. And it's supposed to sting. It's supposed to suck. It's supposed to be bitter and unhappy. So that we would go, oh, I don't like that. And God says, at this moment now, now that you have this bitter taste in your mouth, will you come back to me completely? Or not? So what happens if you don't? Well, then the compromise looks like this. Verse 21, they didn't drive out. That's where it starts. And then it says in verse 27, Menashe didn't drive out. It's interesting, by the way. It says in verse 29, or did Ephraim drive out? Verse 30, nor did Zebulun drive out. Verse 31, nor did Asher drive out. Verse 33, nor did Naphtali drive out. Somewhere down the line, you come up with this, you convince yourself it's a loss before I start, because now I can't do it. <coughs> so I don't drive out anymore. I don't make the effort like I could. And because I don't make the effort, look at what it says, beloved. It says in verse 21, the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin. It says in verse 27, it says the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. They dwelt with them. Interesting, it tells us then in verse 29, the Canaanites dwell in Gezer among them. In verse 30, so the Canaanites dwelt among them. That's where the, so this is what happens. 
We don't drive it out, but we're supposed to. So whatever that is. You've got a problem with lust, you're not driving that out. You've got a problem with drinking, you're not driving that out. You've got a problem with anger or with bitterness or whatever, but you've got people that feed that in your life and you're not driving that out. So now you know what you do? You know, I have a wife like that, but I'm going to lose it anyways. And so what happens is you dwell among it now. So I'm just going to learn how to live with it. You know, you ever have that? I mean, let's, be, let's just be honest here. You're dealing with some kind of thing, and you're just kind of like, you know what, it's not worth the fight. I'm not going to win the fight anyway. I guess I'm just going to have to learn to live not totally victorious. But, I, but the problem is that I show up at church, and people are singing songs of victory, and there's a problem, there's like a smoke in my spirit. Because I'm like, how could they sing that? Don't they know? I can't sing that in total honesty, because I don't have that victory right now. Where's that victory? And we get angry. We get angry with God. We get angry with ourselves. We get angry with everyone else. Because somewhere in it, God says, look, if you turn to me, you have it. We're like, no, 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 no. I'm going to fight this one on my own. And I'm not going to drive those things out of my life that are clearly in opposition with what God wants. So I'm just going to live with it. The problem is, I want to remind you, this isn't a stand. This is a trajectory. So we start with the compromise of replacing something that only God should fill. When we go from that to start, we just don't fight the battles that we should be fighting. And because we don't fight these battles, what happens is we just have to learn to live with defeat that we were promised victory in. And that's mind-numbing for us. Because we can't reconcile that. But it gets worse. It tells us, well, after a while they got stronger, so they put it under tribute. You know what that means? Well, let's just make the best of it. How do I make the best of it? Well, if I can't really get that person out of my life, if I can't really get this thing out of my life, if I can't really... Well, how do I make the best of it? Here's the problem. <coughs> verse 31. It says, Nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants. Verse 32 it says, And the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites. Verse 32. Not that I didn't drive out the inhabitants, but they dwelt among the Canaanites, and in both cases, the inhabitants of the land. Did you see the term? Before this point, what happened is, we were driving them out, but we didn't fight, but it was still our territory. So you can stay here, but it's still my place. So we're going to make the best of it, but I still kind of feel like I have control over it. But now, as you compromise, as I compromise, the next thing that happens is, it becomes their territory now and not mine. And now because it becomes their territory, now I dwell among it. I am the guest. Is where before they were the guests, and look at if you're not right, you're out of here. But now we don't even have the authority to do that anymore. We can't even say change this, correct this, make it better, or whatever, or 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 if not, you need to get out. We don't even have that authority anymore. Now where we're at is we're at this place where we feel like we are totally helpless. But it gets worse. And in all of this, the question is, how bad does it have to get before we finally say, Alright, God, take it all again? Because clearly I'm losing, and in every step I take in this, I'm losing more. There's the problem. It's kind of like the whole thing's a dam, and once you start pumping a little crack in it called compromise, it never gets smaller. There's the problem. Because the pressure of what it's restraining will continue to make the crack larger. And now I'm a guest. In a place that's supposed to be mine. But that's not how the chapter ends. The chapter ends with Dan. And here's the problem with Dan. 
is that the Dan, you guys, look at what it says in verse 34. And the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains, for they would not allow them to come down into the valley. I want to warn you. Do you know what's up in the mountains? First of all, it's rough territory to walk. It's almost impossible to have a good walk up in a mountain. It's thin of air. It's rough ground to walk on. But also, water does not flow uphill. So it's a dry place. And they couldn't go down to the valley. What's in the valley? All that living water. Here's the crazy part. By, this is how it started. I remind you, here's how it started. If I put a little bit of something other than God in my life, where God belongs. And then I started saying defeat. So instead of saying, God, kick that thing out and take the place again, I decided I'm going to fight it instead. So as I tried to fight it, what happened is, now I'm like, oh, this isn't even worth the battle. Now it just seems like my whole life's one fight after another, one fight. I'm just, I am forcing what God is supposed to do for me. I'm forcing it. So I'm not going to fight it at all. So now what happens is I just let this thing stay in my life. And as I let this thing stay in my life, it's all right, though, because it's still my life. It's still my life. And I can kind of stay, come and go as I want. You hear that in any addict. You know, and then Jesus says, whoever sins is a slave to it. So I'm sorry. But sooner or later, that thing grows. And I'm trying to make the best of it. And sooner or later, now it's not my life anymore. It's that thing's life. And if it's that thing's life, I get shoved into this corner somewhere, and now I'm like, I have no freedom. I'm like stuck in this corner. And that's what God says. That's how this chapter, and here's the worst part. He says, this is what happened in Eichelon. This is where Joshua came, and he did not stop. The sun stood still, because God promised, I remind you, total, and that was the key point of that, total victory. That's why he wanted the sun to stand still, because the battle wasn't full. It wasn't done yet, so he says, don't let the sun go down until we've gotten this one done. So sun, stand still, because we've still got more enemy to take down, and once the enemy was taken down, then the sun could set. That was the total opposite of what we see here. It was like, you know what, I don't want to go to sleep, I don't want to get to happen, I don't want to stop praying, I don't want to get off my knees, I don't want to get out of church until this gets done with. I said, ah, I guess I'm just going to have to live in this really stunted little cubicle of a life. And I hear other people talk about abundant life, but it must be theoretical, because clearly nobody must have it, because I don't. How sad is that? And the church has done the same thing, beloved, and you know this. This is supposed to be a Christian country. But aren't we the guests now at best? Shoved into a little corner somewhere. You have your little meetings in your room. Don't you dare try to share Jesus at the workplace. Don't you dare wear your crosses if you're going to be sort of representing the government. Don't you dare. Keep your thing in your little up, up in your little mountain somewhere. Quiet. Sing your little songs. Be your little irritating selves or whatever. Just don't go and force anyone into your view. Honey, this used to be our territory. We were the ones who started saying, hey, this goes or doesn't. Now it's like, we're going, excuse me, sir. How did that happen? You know, it wasn't because the world got stronger. It was because the church stopped making Jesus everything. That was it. So we, had, we brought in all kinds of experts in all kinds of other areas. We found business experts on how to grow a church. We found brilliant people so they could argue our cases. And we, now everything basically is handled by experts. And the majority of the church sits idly by like we're watching a movie. But a strength has been in the number one, our God, and how he advocates the numbers at all. 
the army. And what we're going to see in this book, by the way, in the beginning is the army fought in Joshua. And then the army gets brought together. Then the army has to, by Gideon, he has to blow the trumpet to get people to come. And by the end of it all, a guy does it alone. That's Samson. Do you see how that degrades? And that's what happens when we turn our back on God. So here's what I'm praying as we go to prayer now. Obviously, I'd love to get to chapter 2, but I think we have enough if you want. Where are you at in this question? Where am I at in this question? And God says, bitterness, selfishness, self-centeredness, lust, anger, whatever it is, something that you know needs to be handed to him. But God says, I want to be the Lord of your past. When God says, I want to be the Lord of your future. When God says, I want to be your identity. When God says, I want to be your peace. When God says, I want to be your hope. When God says, I want to be your joy. When God says, I want to be your strength. When God says, I want to be your truth. When God says, I want to be your way. I want to be your life. What percentage does he get? I'm not just talking to you, I'm talking to me. Because for the, every 1% it comes 2 to 3 to 4 to 5% in me. Because it doesn't convert. And it needs to be. I don't want a living king, even if he doesn't have thumbs and toes. I don't want a little something in my life and go, that's okay. It's not worth the fight. It is worth the fight. And let me tell you why it's worth the fight. Because you were worth the fight. And so was I. My lion of God came and he fought for me. And I always says, let's let me fight. Let me continue to lead the fight. But if I'm going to continue to lead the fight, you need to know all of your life is worth fighting for. Follow me into it. Is there any area you're going, don't worry, Lord, I'll take care of this thing? God, give me strength to fight this battle instead of God, fight this battle, and let me get behind you in it? Hey, look, at I know this is heavy, but don't you see this is what we need? Because this is how we enter into the book of Judges. We enter into the book of Judges saying, do I want my life to be this cycle? Or do I want my life to be one that goes, oh, God is more amazing by every day. So let me ask you, how is your wonder? How is your hope? And how is your joy? Because those three things will tell you how you're doing vertically. Shouldn't I be more in wonder of God today than yesterday? No, I Shouldn't I be more hopeful because I've seen him conquer everything in my past? Shouldn't I have more joy because in his presence is the fullness of God? And then as we look at each other, let me ask you, how's your love? How is my love for you? Is my love for you enough to tell you the truth? Is my love enough still to have compassion? Is my love enough to be willing to die in whatever way is necessary for you to have the life you need? God does that. Can you imagine what's going to happen? It won't be the book of Judges. It'll be the end of the book of Revelation. And like, you know what? You really are holy, holy, holy. You really are worthy, worthy, worthy. And I just want to hang out with you. Be my life, be my temple, be my home. That's what he wants. He fought for you at the cross. Died there. That's how we won the battle. 
and he rose again to give us new life, not the Lord. We don't deny the battle you fought for us. Oddly enough, the victory was in your death. The parade was in your resurrection. The triumph. Thank God. Though you triumphed at the cross over the handwriting of the requirements, the bill that was ours, the debt that had to be paid, the crime stood against us in our doctrine. You volunteered to take all of the beatings we rightly deserve because you showed us we were worth the fight. And you gave us all of you. All of you. And as you gave us all of you, we want to respond properly by giving you all of us. But we confess we are fickle jackrabbits in our hearts. And that's not what we want. Even if we don't want what we should, we want to want what we should, God. And I pray tonight that tonight here in this room that we would openly make the declaration that we are no distractions. We would openly declare our allegiance to God. Whatever He placed you in the place place it with you. Let there be no compromise whatsoever. And don't let us live the life of the book of Judges, but rather let us make you the proper king you deserve to be on the throne of our hearts. And confess ourselves yours now. And pray you bring that restoration as you intend. Restore our wonder. Restore our joy. Restore our hope. And as you do so, then, restore our love for one another. And let us be willing to kick out everything that is necessary. God, fight those battles. We get behind you now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, saints, the privilege of being able to be in the Word with you. Thank you for the honor being your pastor. Please love on each other tonight. Be a blessing. Use those opposable thumbs and enjoy your distance.